Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to Texas History Lessons. I'm Michael. And today we take a look at a few more fascinating and significant events related to Texas that have occurred over the years in the month of November. Now, we all know that Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492, and he reached some islands in the Caribbean, and this pretty much changed the world from that point on. Texas, as far as we know, however, was never seen by Europeans until 1519 when Pineda sailed the coast of the Gulf of Mexico and produced the first known map of the Texas coast. That's disputed whether or not he or anyone else actually set foot on the land that is modern Texas at that point. It's fairly agreed that he probably didn't, but we don't really know. And whenever he did make this trip along the coast, that was 27 years after Columbus first sailed. It would be another nine years, 36 years after Columbus, when we definitely know of someone setting foot on Texas soil. It was on November 6th, 1528, that survivors of the ill-fated Narvaez expedition washed ashore on an island off the Texas coast, somewhere near or on Galveston Island. Four people survived out of everybody that landed, and they reached Mexico in 1536 after wandering Texas for several years. Three were European by birth, the most famous being Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca, then there was Alonso del Castillo, and then there was Andres Dorantes de Carranza. A fourth survivor was Estevanico, Carranza's slave, and likely the first Muslim and person of African birth to set foot in Texas, and who played a pretty significant role in the group's survival as they traveled Texas. It was their report that led to the Coronado Expedition of 1540 that we talked about last month, and we'll be traveling with them very soon when we get into the Spanish lessons. But for just a moment, imagine yourself on a raft in the Gulf of Mexico. You're hungry and cold, and not sure if you're ever going to survive and see home again. And then, next thing you know, you're cast on the shore of a strange land, and you have to survive by doing whatever these strange new people you're meeting want you to do. 
just how tough and clever are you? These four people were probably a little bit tougher and more clever. It's an amazing adventure that I'm looking forward to going into great detail on in the near future. Next up, have you ever heard of Philippe Andrik Nering Bogel? Most of you probably haven't. But his birthday is on November 23rd, 1759. But most of you that are listening to this Texas History Lessons podcast, because of your love of Texas history, most of you have probably heard of the Baron de Bastrop, the person whose chance meeting with Moses Austin in San Antonio changed the tide of history and helped ensure the colonization contract that Moses' son, Stephen Austin, would fulfill in the 1820s. Now, Bogel was born in Dutch Guiana, which is actually in South America and is better known as Suriname. But he grew up in Holland. And like many of the early Texans we're going to encounter, Bogel wasn't very trustworthy. After serving in the cavalry of Holland and Upper Issel, he left the Netherlands in 1793 in order to avoid being tried and punished for charges of embezzlement of tax funds. In the New World, he thought he could be anything he wanted, and he pretty much proved it. By when he landed in Spanish Louisiana, he made himself into a person of nobility, the Baron de Bastrop, and had people believing he was actually a Dutch nobleman. When the United States bought Louisiana to help out Napoleon with his finances in 1803, Bogel, or Bastrop, or whatever you want to call him, moved west into Spanish Texas. He received permission to start a colony between Bear and the Trinity River, and that venture never resulted in anything. So he ended up settling in San Antonio in 1806. He started a freighting business and became friends with everyone he could, especially important people like government officials. Now, like I said, he wasn't necessarily trustworthy, and even he had a role in the capture of Father Hidalgo during the Mexican Revolution against Spain. He kind of worked as a counter-spy and was actually, I think he was present when Hidalgo was arrested. It was his relationship with the Governor Antonio Maria Martinez that gained Moses Austin the approval of his Anglo-American Texas colony project. Moses, as most of you know, did not get to see his dream come true, but Bastrop or Bogel or the Baron or whoever did assist Stephen F. Austin in his dealings with the Mexican government. But time doesn't last for everyone, of course, and Bogel, Bastrop, whatever, died in February 23rd, 1827, when he was 67 years old and his body was interred into the soil in Saltillo. He led an interesting life and we'll definitely be learning more about him in the future. So while Bastrop or Vogel was performing his military service in the Netherlands in the 1770s, specifically in 1779, an important person by the real name of Athanase de Messieres died in San Antonio on November 2nd, 1779. He actually was born into a noble family in Paris in 1719. 
He must have had an adventurous spirit because before he turned 20, he journeyed to Louisiana and served there with the French army during the 1730s. It's important to remember that after what U.S. Americans call the French and Indian War, and a lot of other people call the Seven Years' War, Spain gained control over Louisiana in 1763. Now, did all the French just pack up their bags and go home? Nope. Many stayed on and offered their services to Spain. Mezieres was an interesting, intelligent, and daring person. He not only spoke French, Spanish, and Latin, but he could converse in several of the Native American languages as well, including many of the Catawan dialects of the Red River Valley region. Spanish Louisiana Governor Alejandro O'Reilly appointed him to serve as the Lieutenant Governor of Natchitoches in 1769, and it's here that he embarked on a number of explorations of the Red River Valley, where he negotiated treaties on behalf of Spain. In 1770, he made treaties with the Quiches, Tawakanis, Tavoyas, and by proxy of the Tavoyas, the Tonkawas. And then he made another important treaty, apparently in 1771, with other Wichitas. And this was a pretty significant accomplishment. These tribes, as we learned last month, called the Norteños, had long been enemies of New Spain. Mezieres' efforts made things from the Red River to the Trinity River and Brazos River Valleys better and eased tensions. Now, if you recall, the... Perea expedition of October 1759 from the last episode, you'll recall that Spain realized very quickly that they had backed the wrong horse by supporting the Apaches. And now they sought to fix the situation. And Bernardo de Galvez, governor of Louisiana and namesake for Galveston, gave Mazieres the assignment of uniting the Comanches and other Norteños in an alliance with Spain against the Apaches. And he was a good man for the job, had great diplomatic skills, knew how to deal with the native peoples. Unfortunately, during his travels, he had a bad fall from a horse, suffered a pretty severe head injury. And this was actually on the road between Los Adias and Nacogdoches, which now is West Louisiana and East Texas. But remember, Los Ares at one time was the capital of Texas. We'll get back to that a little bit later here on in this episode. Mezieres did make it to San Antonio, and while he was there, he found out that he had been made governor of Texas. Sadly, he never had the chance to make the alliance happen with the Comanches and Norteños or serve as governor. The injuries suffered in the accident were too severe, and he died on November 2nd, 1779. It's one of those what-if incidents that makes you scratch your head, like, what if he had survived? Would things have been different? But we got what we got, and we might as well deal with the actual facts that we have. Now, one of the funny things for me about history and time traveling the way we do in this month in Texas history is to see the closeness of things that often seem very distant and foreign. And the next thing is a weird one to me. And then something like this next one 
this is next date pops up and one second we're traveling with Spanish and French explorers. And in a second, we're barely 20 years later in thinking about Borden milk. Come on. You remember Elsie the cow and all the fine products you've enjoyed from the company, like their vitamin D milk, 2% reduced fat, 1% reduced low fat, fat-free skim, my favorite Dutch chocolate, not so favorite Dutch chocolate 1%, and then there's the light line and high protein. And they also distribute other fine products like cream, buttermilk dips, sour cream, juices, teas, so on. And no, I'm not getting paid for a plug. I'm just showing this is something we all are pretty familiar with. Well, that delightful brand was the creation of a man by the name of Gail Borden Jr., who was born in New York City on November 9th, 1801. Not that long after the events we've just been looking at. Not only was he the founder of the Borden Company, of which we now know him. He was also an inventor and a publisher and pretty much had a really big curiosity. And he started out in Texas as a young surveyor for Austin's colony in 1829. He then set up publishing the Texas Telegraph and Texas Register in the 1830s. He later set up the first topographical map of Texas. And he even participated in laying out the town site for Houston. He had many, many ideas. He made attempts at refrigeration. He tried to design a machine that would travel both on land and, and in water. And he had the great idea for a tasty and nutritious meat biscuit. Yeah, that, that sounds as bad as it does. Yes, a meat biscuit. Haven't heard of that being distributed by Borden's. It's probably for a good reason. He perfected the recipe for the meat biscuit in the 1849 and tried to make it worldwide marketed. It was not a success. But in 1853, he did succeed when he sought the patent for the process of condensing milk in vacuum. And then he later opened up a condensed milk factory in Connecticut in 1858. And with the onset of the Civil War, that brought extreme high demand for this product. After the war, he returned to Texas, set up the community of Borden, and started a meat packing plant, not a meat biscuit plant, thank goodness. A man of a lot of interest and creativity, Borden died in Borden on January 11th, 1874. And Elsie, the beloved cow, she didn't arrive until many, many, many years later. So while young Gail Borden Jr. was up in New York building his brain to create meat biscuits and condensed milk, serious matters were being attended to down here in Texas. The border of Texas had a long, contentious history. And pretty much, the border has stories that can be told about it from any section of it around the state. One early area of division and contention was the border between Louisiana and Texas. Again, the United States bought Louisiana in 1803 and problems immediately arose. Remember me talking about Los Aires, the first capital of Texas? Well, it is now located in modern Louisiana. 
So you see how there could be a disagreement, though. How could the land around the first capital of Texas be in Louisiana? It's one of those little curious quirks of history. Things started to get pretty tense after the purchase, and there was some saber rattling. This led to somebody we're going to learn a lot of interesting things about later on, General James Wilkinson and Lieutenant Colonel Simone de Herrera sitting down together and trying to find a peaceful resolution. It actually has happened in the past, and this one worked. What they came up with was an agreement signed on November 5th, 1806, creating the neutral ground between Texas and Louisiana. The Arroyo Hondo served as the eastern border, and the Zabine River served as the western boundary. Later on, the Adams-Onese Treaty of 1821 did away with the neutral ground, and the land was awarded to the United States. Now, the Adams-Onese Treaty coincided with the beginning of Austin's colony in Texas, and as early as 1823, Stephen F. Austin began employing experienced frontiersmen as rangers to launch punitive expeditions against Native Americans. On November 24, 1835, Texas lawmakers caught up in the early turmoil that led to the independence in 1836, they finally officially sanctioned the Texas Rangers as an institution. The force has had many ups and downs in its long history, with some true successes, as well as being party to some pretty horrific acts. And I'm not here to beat up anybody. I'm If you're going to listen to this podcast, we're going to look at everything that has happened, um, good and bad. Um, during the Mexican-American War, they participated in several significant U.S. victories, gained some notoriety, and they also gained the name of Los Diablos Tejanos, the Texas Devils. While they were very effective in a fight, I remember reading that several United States military commanders did not want them around at times because they were so hard to control. But they were fighters. And if you haven't listened to it yet, check out the great Texas History Lessons episode on Jose Canales by Josh, the host of the Wild West Extravaganza. It highlights the efforts of Canales to bring to light the many acts of unwarranted violence against Hispanics and others in the early years. And the Texas Rangers' troubles just weren't associated with that. In 1933, Texas Governor Miriam A., also known as Ma Ferguson, she fired all 44 Texas Rangers because they were all being actively partisan in support for her opponent for the governorship, Ross Sterling. Now, in 1935, Texas created the Texas Department of Public Safety and gave it responsibility for a greatly reduced force of Texas Rangers. Following this, the Rangers' reputation continued to grow to as an elite branch of law enforcement in Texas, but not only in Texas, it's also looked at as one of the elite law enforcement agencies in the United States. And on November 26, 1835, during the Siege of Bear, the Texans won a little skirmish called the Grass Fight. Odd name, right? The name comes from the fact that after attacking a relief column bound with aid for the Mexican army, Instead of the pay 
for the army they thought would be there or some other useful items or gold or weapons. They found the pack train was only loaded with grass to feed the besieged Mexican army's animals. The Texans had four wounded and the Mexicans lost three dead and 14 wounded over the battle over packs of grass. Now, this is a great spot to stop and thank Age of Radio for hosting Texas History Lessons before moving on to another important November event. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. November the 15th, 1836 is the day that Lorenzo de Zavala died from pneumonia after his rowboat turned over in Buffalo Bayou, which is down near where Houston is today. This man was very significant. He was instrumental in the establishment of a Republican government in Mexico during the 1820s, but he was forced into exile because of his position on the issue between federalism and centralism. No one other than Santa Ana actually did welcome him back from exile in 1832 and made him the head minister of the Mexican legation to Paris. But after he heard about Santa Ana's assumption of dictatorial powers, he resigned, made his way back, and went to Texas. And he became an important player in the independence movement. He was largely significant in the creation of the Republic of Texas Constitution and became the Republic's first vice president. In poor health, he resigned on October 17, 1836, and died on November 15, 1836, after the Buffalo Bayou accident. Lorenzo de Zavala was a man with an extremely keen intellect and was a great asset to the establishment of Texas. Unfortunately, his death was a great loss and cut short any further contributions he might have made in the development of the Republic and the state. Now, speaking of keen analects, do you know what the oldest institution of higher learning in Texas is that is still operating under its original charter? Baylor? Nope. UT, University of Texas, Austin. No. Um, no, no, no. It's Austin College. Not to be confused with another fine institution named Stephen F. Austin. Austin College was incorporated in Huntsville, Texas on November 22, 1849, and was established by the Brazos Presbytery of the Old School Presbyterian Church, and they set it up to be a men's college and a theological school. Texas presidents Sam Houston and Anson Jones were both charter members of the Board of Trustees. So it's chartered in 1849, opened for classes in 1850, and then after the Civil War and Reconstruction, it fell on some hard times 
started losing uh, enrollment, had some financial difficulties. So the Texas Synod of the Presbyterian Church of the United States decided to move the college to Sherman, Texas, up in Grayson County in 1876. And by 1878, the first college building was completed and 53 students were enrolled. And Austin College is still a thriving small private liberal arts college, still located in Sherman, Texas, on a 70-acre campus with an enrollment of about 1,200 to 1,300 students, an acceptance rate of 51%, and they offer over 40 academic majors. Moving on. We just discussed the issue of Texas border controversies. November 25th, 1850 marks the day that Texas gave up its claims to disputed land in New Mexico. After the Mexican-American War ended and the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo had been signed, Texas made a pretty blatant land grab and created Santa Fe County, a massive county including territory that had always been part of New Mexico. And then in January 1850, it subdivided Santa Fe County into the counties of Worth, El Paso, Presidio, and Santa Fe County. One problem. The people that lived there did not want to be part of Texas, and they never considered themselves to be in Texas. Texas did move on, though, to start organizing in Presidio and El Paso counties. They didn't get around to organizing Worth and Santa Fe, counties that really never existed. And in the Compromise of 1850, Texas agreed to reduce Presidio and El Paso counties to a smaller size, return more land to what would become New Mexico, and gave up the claims on the other New Mexico territory altogether. No wonder New Mexicans all don't have a great love for Texas. Speaking of thieves, November 1st, 1866, saw the marriage of Myra Maybelle Shirley to Jim Reed. You probably know her better as Belle Starr. And Reed was an outlaw, sometimes involved with the Younger and James brothers, as well as running with some other gangs and the gang that where Star got her name, Star Gang. We'll get to that. As a side note, the connection of the Jameses and Youngers and others from Missouri to the North Texas area is a pretty remarkable story in itself. Part of that comes from the Missouri guerrilla raiders of the Civil War, their enjoyment of wintering in the area of North Texas. They'll definitely be worthy of an episode or two in the future. Now, Reed had ridden with Quantrill and came to Texas after the war. Bell's family, the Shirleys, had moved from Missouri to Texas during the war. They'd known each other before, and apparently she'd had a crush on him before. So they got married November 1866, November 1st, in Collin County, Texas. And it was in the 1870s that Reed started riding with the Star Gang, a Cherokee family involved in horse and cattle theft and other things in the Indian Territory. Reed's past caught up with him when he was killed by a law officer in Paris, Texas in 1874. And according to the Handbook of Texas, the premier source for Texas history, along with the Southwest Historical Quarterly, up until that time, there are apparently no records that Bell Reed 
was ever involved in murder, the robbery of trains, banks, and stagecoaches, or in cattle rustling. There are rumors, though, that while she was running a stable in Dallas, she actually would sell horses that Reed had stolen. Reed himself, Howard, definitely had a criminal record. Now, Bell married Sam Starr in 1880 and settled with the Starr family in Indian Territory. And in 1883, she and her husband were charged with horse theft and then arrested by the legendary Bass Reeves. Bell was given two six-month terms at the House of Correction in Detroit, Michigan, where it said she was a pretty model prisoner. After being released, she was again charged with horse theft, but did not get convicted. And Bell, let's just say, had many, quote, boyfriends over the years. Jim July or Jim Starr, Blue Duck, a guy named Jack Spaniard and Jim French. But she came to a mysterious end where she was murdered while living in Cherokee Nation and Indian Territory in 1889. And there are a couple of suspects. But again, this is another topic worthy of you looking into it yourself and some future episodes. A lot to dig into with that. Now, on November 24th, 1868, while the Comanches still ruled the Southern Plains, Bell Starr and her Missouri family and associates like the Jameses and Youngers were just getting warmed up in their lives of crime. While Reconstruction was still in effect, the great king of ragtime, Scott Joplin, was born near Linden, Texas. Scott's father had been, of course, a former slave. He moved the family to Texarkana about 1875. And if you can't figure it out from the name, Texarkana is on the border of Texas and Arkansas. And young Scott would have been living there in 1876 when news of the Battle of Little Bighorn and the Custer Massacre spread across the country. I'm just fascinated by people that were around during things we don't normally associate with them, but he would have been involved and aware of a lot of this. So about 1876, Scott was already a pretty dang good banjo player and was starting to experiment with the piano at the home of a neighbor that employed his mother for domestic help. Now enter the influences of German-born Hulis or Julius Weiss, who began giving Scott free piano lessons about 1879, along with teaching young Scott the basics of sight reading, harmony, and just music appreciation in general. From this involvement with Weiss, Scott developed a love of opera also. Now, Scott Joplin moved to St. Louis, Missouri about 1890. And that was a place where a music called Ragged Time or just Ragtime was becoming popular. And then he would take it to another level. If you ever have a few hours to spend in St. Louis, First of all, I say go across the river and visit Cahokia. But second, closely ranked with that, is visit Scott Joplin's home. He lived there, and they have preserved his home as a museum. 
And I completely enjoyed visiting the site a couple of years ago with my family and just loved every second of getting to be there. Tell them Texas History Lesson sent you. His first sheet music started getting published in 1899 and sold over a million copies. You probably have already heard his best-known work, even if you're not that familiar with that kind of music. Its name is the Maple Leaf Rag. If you haven't, then check it out along with some of his other works. His music is a big part of the foundation of things to come in, in music of the 20th century. He wrote many, many works and even incorporated ragtime into ballet and two operas. He later moved to New York in 1911, where he died in 1917. He really was one of the great giants of music history. And he had his roots right here in little old Texas. Now, if any of you are familiar with the works of author Cormac McCarthy, you might also be familiar with that he wrote a book called Blood Meridian or The Evening Redness in the West. It's one of his more notorious books and also one of his most highly praised books. And yet I also have talked to people that hate it. And I can see why. It was published in 1985, the same year as McMurtry's Lonesome Dove. And it is an extremely brutal, bloody, hard-to-read book just for the acts of violence that were very real acts of violence committed by Jack Glanton's scalp hunter gang that terrorized northern Mexico in the aftermath of the Mexican-American War in the 1850s. Glanton was real as was a gentleman named Sam Chamberlain, a Mexican-American war soldier who apparently deserted to join Glenn and rode with Glenn. And McCarthy no doubt used Sam Chamberlain's memoir, My Confession, The Recollections of a Rogue, while researching and writing Blood Meridian. Why am I bringing it up? Chamberlain died on November 10th, 1908, having ridden with a gang of scalp hunters, and he died when Scott Joplin was the ruling as a king of ragtime. There are so many more things I want to include, but let's just close out with another music-related event. Everybody knows, it's no secret, I love music, and I like incorporating it every way I can. So let's end with the November 5th, 1960 death of the great Johnny Horton. He died on that day in a car accident in Milano, Texas. I personally grew up, like some of you might have, listening to Horton and loving so many of the songs that I heard. I don't even know how to describe the distinctive singing style he had. And along with the fact that he often sang songs with a history theme like the Battle of New Orleans, well, it was a natural for young me to enjoy. He was born actually in California in 1925, but he grew up in East Texas, graduated from a high school in Gallatin, and went to junior college in Jacksonville and Kilgore before moving on and eventually launching his music career in 1950. But unfortunately, his music career was only about 10 years long when he did die in that car wreck on November 5th, 1960. And last but not least, as if I even need to remind you of perhaps the most famous event in November Texas history, November 23rd marks the 1963 assassination of President John F. Kennedy in Dallas. 
And I'm not going to spend any time on that because I'm pretty sure you know all you need to know about that. But thanks for listening. Thanks to Ron, Jay, Kay, Brenda, Tim, Josh, Johnny, Rama, and Eric, the newest supporter, for your help on Patreon. Every little donation y'all have made to me is a great assistance to me, and it helps supply me with books and other resources to bring these episodes to everybody. As always, remember to subscribe and listen to the Wild West Extravaganza. Listen to and subscribe to the History Cafe podcast. And for Texas music lovers like me, go check out Chris Waterman's, Rev Waterman's Hymns of the Highway podcast and Aaron Lee Bentley's Off Mike Off the Record podcast on Texas music. There are always room out there for good podcasts that treat music right, and those are two of the best ones that I've come across. Speaking of music, as usual, remember to listen to Texas History Lesson Spotlight artist Mondo Salas. Wherever you enjoy music, he has new music out now. I ended last month's episode with his new song, Old Dogs, and he was kind enough to let me actually do an early version of Old Dogs on the podcast before he even released this. The, the version that's on Spotify and elsewhere right now, you can go buy it wherever you buy music online. It's available, as are a couple of other songs, and we're going to be closing out the show with another new song from him. And then, you know, I've been talking about these other guys, uh, Zach Welch, Seth Jones, and I also want to encourage you to check out Oliver White Group. Oliver is another amazingly talented artist. And the beautiful thing about all of these musicians, including Texas History Lessons first spotlight artist, Jared Flushy, is you could make a playlist of all of their music with them all contributing to the playlist. And each one brings something a little unique to the experience. So I'm going to end the show with another great new song by Rosemond, Mondo Salas's amazing band. Okay, so we're going to end this episode with Rosemond's All We Got. We're going to mix things up a little bit, start mixing things up and adding new artists to and introducing some new people. And we're going to start playing after... Uh, after all we got, we're going to follow that up with a song by Zach Welch titled Enough. And I've reached out to some other people to see if they want to participate. And hopefully we'll have a little bit more variety coming into the end of the show soon. So thanks to them and thanks to everybody for listening. As always, take care of yourself. Take care of each other. Be kind. Adios.